Amen. Go ahead and be seated for me. We're going to take a dive into God's Word this morning. Brother David, are you going to read? Okay. I didn't know if Thomas got with you or not. If you'll open your Bibles to John chapter 1, I'll let you sit through it once. John chapter 1. Only once. Next week. Well, no. Let's just not say that. Let me not make promises I can't keep. Is this working? John 1, verse 9. The true light, which is light to everyone, has come into the world. He is in the world, and the world was not, then the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's look to the Lord one more time. Father, we do ask that you would just give us wisdom and grace as we enter into your word, a time of studying it, a time of thinking about it, engage our minds, engage our hearts, engage our will. We pray now, give us ears to hear, make us receptive to your word. Holy Spirit, communicate more clearly to our hearts than any words could ever do. Let us walk out of this place knowing that we have heard from you. Let us walk out of this place with the desire to do exactly what it is that you call us to do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brother David. So if you will, kind of just hold your place in John chapter 20. We're going to spend most of our time in John chapter 20, but I do kind of want to tie into some of the things that Pastor Nathan and Pastor Thomas have talked to us about in the last couple of weeks. Um, A few weeks ago, Pastor Nathan told us, he recentered our hearts on the fact that this is a season that we celebrate the beauty of all beauties, and that beauty is that God himself came. For all that Christmas is, and it is a bunch, right? Anybody anybody feeling that yet? Kind of the noose of Christmas season? Like we broke our rule and went to Walmart on a Saturday, right? That's Christmas. That's what Christmas does to you. For all that it is, and all the traditions, and all the things that we do, it is ultimately about the fact and the beauty that God himself came. That Jesus, the Word, was made flesh and dwelt among us, as John says here in John chapter 1. The Word was Jesus, and we beheld His beauty and His glory full of grace and full of truth, John says. John tells us that Jesus put flesh, blood, and bone on the very God of gods. This is the beauty that God came. And you would think that if God came to his world, that his world would be filled with joy and rejoicing, that it would be what all of our Christmas hymns say, right? Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king and every heart prepare him room. Heaven and nature erupting forth in praise and joyous song. That's what you would expect when God himself comes and robes himself in human flesh. The other hymn that we sang, long lay the world in sin 
and error. What's the next word? You know what pining means? Pining means longing, yearning. Because it's laying in sin and error. And now they're longing for redemption. They're longing for hope. They're longing for new. And you remember what the song goes on to say? For yonder breaks. Did I just say yonder like Oklahomans say yonder? Okay, I felt like I did. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoice. That's what should have been. But as Pastor Thomas told us last week, that's not exactly what was, right? For God came, and that is the ultimate beauty of beauties, but the ultimate human tragedy is that God came and man didn't want it. This is a very bleak picture, but it is the picture that the Bible paints, that Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. Look at verse number 9. This is the true light, speaking of Jesus, which gives light to everyone. And he was coming into the world. And Jesus, the, the light or the word or all of the titles that he has given in the book of John, he came to his own. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. Blind, oblivious to the fact that God had come. Not only were they oblivious to the fact, not only is there this kind of ignorance that John speaks of, but he then talks about not just ignorance, but this willful rejection. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. And Pastor Thomas spoke of this uh, last week, that the very God of gods came. And the ultimate tragedy of humanity is that they didn't care. They didn't want him. They refused to know him. His own refused him altogether. The light of the world came into the world. And John says that men love darkness rather than light. So just use your mind's imagination for just a moment. And picture being trapped in absolute and utter darkness. Have you ever gone into like the depths of a cave? Anybody? What's the cave up in Woodward, Oklahoma? Anybody know? Somebody knows. Some of you are like, we have caves in Oklahoma? Yes, three. Only three, right? I don't know. But what they do is they take you down into the bottom of this cave, and then they shut out all the lights. And it's, not, it's, it's worse than church dark. Like, you ever been at church after hours and all the lights are out? That's scary dark. The depths of this cave are even darker. So imagine being in absolute and utter darkness, and then light peeks in through this door. And what the world did, living in absolute, utter, total darkness, is rather light burst in just enough to know that something is better, something is good. And what men said, John says, is they would prefer their darkness to the light of Christ. I would rather live in the dark. And John goes on to say it was because their deeds were evil. But the point he is making is this, is that Jesus came into the world. The Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world came to humanity and humanity rejected him. Isaiah's words are very powerful. He says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom man hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Here's the truth. From the cradle to the cross, Jesus was a rejected man. And yet, here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He never loses sight of why he came. John reminds us in John chapter 3, 
And these are Jesus' words himself. He says, I've not been sent into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might have life. Like Jesus is focused on his mission. And here, even in the beginning of John chapter 1, we get a glimmer of hope. Listen to verse number 12. But all who did receive him. So yes, there is this great rejection. Yes, God did come and people chose darkness over light. But not everyone did. And this is the hope that Jesus brings to humanity. Is that there are those who receive him. And to those who receive him, he gives them the right and the power and the authority to become the children of God. This is the beautiful hope. And John will play this out over the next 21 chapters. That there are those who reject Jesus and there are those who receive Jesus. By faith, they receive him. And to everyone who does receive him, they are made the child or the children of God. Later, as John is writing his letters towards the end of the New Testament, he burst forth into rapturous song and he says, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. We, of all people, that you and I should be called. Look around to your brother and say, it's a wonder that God calls you his son. You don't want to do that? You're not that comfortable? Okay. Just wanted to see if you were with me there. So go over to John chapter 20. And this is how John sums up the entire His entire gospel. This is John's entire message in short form. The words that we read in verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, the ones that I have recorded for you. I wrote them so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It is the design of the entire gospel that is penned by the hand of John. Everything that he writes is to bring us to the settled conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he said he does. That's what John's aim is, is that we would believe this is John's word. He uses this word 98 times. The word believe or faith, which are translated from the same word, are used above 250 times in the New Testament. And of those 250 times, John uses them 98. He wants us to understand that, hey, this is what I'm after. And if you could sum up, and this is actually the teaching of the entire New Testament. If you could sum up the ultimate response of humanity to who Jesus is and what Jesus does, it can be summed up in this word to believe. Faith, faith or belief is the ultimate response of the human heart to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, to believe him, to trust him, to place our confidence in him. And to those who do, John says, he gives so many things and he sums it all up underneath this umbrella of the word that he uses called life. John uses this word 55 times. It's his his kind of catch-all word. This is the message that John wants us to understand, that anyone can believe in Jesus, and all who do believe in Jesus are given life in his name. Now, this message, the message of who Christ is and what you and I are called to do with him, is the absolute central message of our faith. Um, there is absolutely, literally nothing more important than this. Who Christ is and what we are to do with him. There are many other important issues that we are called to navigate. Shake your head. 
There are lots of things that we have to do as human beings, as Christians living in a world. All of those things are true. But there is nothing more important than this issue. Who is Jesus and what are we supposed to do with him? Okay? This is of the central message. And so today what what I hope to do is I hope to be as clear as I possibly can. You know, we talk a lot about preaching and how preaching in and of itself, by itself alone, is not enough to build faithful followers of Jesus. Can I tell you this? If you didn't know this, if the only scripture you are getting is from the Sunday morning sermon, your spiritual life can be nothing more than anemic. It's just not enough. It's not. It's not enough to build faithful disciples. We don't have the context and the space to tease out everything that needs to be teased out or to talk about everything that needs to be talked about. That's why I often make the joke, hey, if we say something here that's unclear, if you what? Does anybody remember? If you buy me coffee, I will tell you everything I know. Or chocolate milk, right? Chocolate milk, coffee, all the same. Sometimes chocolate milk in the coffee. Um, yeah, that is nasty. It's not, it's not right? And here's the truth. If you were to ask Pastor Rick or Pastor Nathan or Pastor Thomas, we call him Bishop Rick. Um, and any of these guys, they would do the same. Here's, here's my thinking today. This is so important that we understand and we understand correctly that if it's not made clear today, I'll buy the coffee. And I don't buy coffee for anybody. But I got my own credit card just for buying coffee because that is this important. Like we can't, you can afford to be wrong about so many things. And it really won't matter in the scheme of eternity. But listen to me. If we are wrong about Jesus and if we are wrong about what we are called to do in response to him, then we, it doesn't matter what we're right about. It doesn't. So let's walk through this. We'll walk through this kind of quick. Hopefully it is clear. Hopefully it is compelling. So this is John's statement about what he is asking us to, what he is inviting us to, and what is on the table as the offer. And I believe that this has been one of the most helpful verses for me in kind of summing up what Jesus and what this Christian thing is all about. So follow his words closely. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. John says, I could have told you more. There's more to talk about. As a matter of fact, John only records eight miracles. Matthew records 20, Luke or Mark records 18, I believe, and Luke records 20. And John says, no, I only gave you eight. I could talk more about what Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. If you read along the end of chapter 21, he'll say there are many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John says we couldn't even put pen and paper to everything that Jesus did. But what I've given you, I've given you on purpose. It's not a detailed history, but it is a very important point of what I'm trying to accomplish and what I'm after. All of these things that I've recorded in my gospel, they were written to match the overall design of what I'm after. And what I'm writing is so that you would believe. Listen to what he says. Now many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, the ones that I did record, are written so that you. So here's a good way to understand the word you in the Gospel of John. You means whoever. Whosoever is what it means. Here's what the Gospel did. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus busted into the scene of humanity, and what, it, what humanity was at the time was deeply segregated. And there were things for some people, and there were things for other people, but there wasn't something that was for all people. Jesus burst into the scene, and it is for all people. 
literally for all people. Anyone can believe, and all who believe are made the sons and the children and the daughters of God. And so this is John's message to us. That anyone, so let me give you two points, and I want to drill down on these, and I want to be very important. The ask is to believe. Notice what he says. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The ask is to believe. The second point I want you to understand is that the offer is life. Okay? So let's just chase this out for just a minute. Well, that was loud. I I brought a bigger thing of water this week, so I don't have to ask my son to do chores for me. So at the heart of the New Testament is this call to believe or faith as it shows up often. It's the same word. It's the same basic concept. And it is literally the hinge pin of everything about our relationship to Jesus Christ. Everything rises and falls on faith or to believe. There's nothing more central than this. The ultimate response of humanity to the person and work of Jesus is to be one of faith. So there is this incident in Acts chapter 16 um, where Paul and Silas have been arrested. They're in chains overnight. Does anybody remember what happened? They're singing in prison, right? They're singing praises to God. And as they sing, the earth begins to tremble and the walls begin to shake. Sounds like an Elvis song, right? And then the cuffs fall off, their chains are dropped, and all of the prisoners are free. And the jailer asks this strange question. He says, sirs, what must I do to be what? Saved. Paul and Silas then repeat, believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved, and all of your house. And so at the heart of our response to Jesus is this concept of believe. So our question then has to be, what does it mean to believe? Did you know that nearly 80% of all Americans say they believe in Jesus? Anybody uncomfortable with that number? Anybody uncomfortable with that number? If 80% of people believe in Jesus, why is there little difference that Jesus makes? And so I have to wonder then, what does it mean to believe? What does Scripture mean when it calls us to believe? Are we speaking of some mental assent to the facts? Are we talking about something more? And, and, And the last thing I want to do here is to make this confusing, okay? I really don't want to make this confusing, but I do want you to understand that we can make faith less than what it is. Everybody with me? You can make faith less than what it is. We can make it more than what it is, but we can also make it less than what it is. And either ditch is bad. So we want to stay out of those. So at the very least, faith in the scripture, as defined by the revelation of God, which is always best to find our definitions in, is a deeply layered concept. There are different aspects. There are different approaches. It is a multifaceted thing, this concept of faith. And it is fascinating to trace it through the scriptures. So follow with me, if you will. In the New Testament, but even in the Gospel of John, faith is anything but passive. It's not something that happens to us. It is something that is exercised by us. It is active. It is ongoing posture towards the person of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, faith is anything but blind. It's built on reason and trustworthiness. It's based on witness and evidence. John paints the picture of those who appear to have faith, and and as time progresses, it becomes apparent that maybe they don't actually have genuine faith at all. For John, faith involves the will of a person. It includes the actions and behaviors of a person. Faith for John is something that is subject to refinement and growth even. 
It is used to describe as trusting someone or trusting something. The scriptures also use faith to talk about a set of convictions that are deeply held and shape one's behavior and life. Faith is often contrasted in the New Testament with disobedience. And you would expect it to be contrasted with doubt, right? Because there is an active element to faith. Remember what James said? James says faith without works is dead. It's lifeless. You say, well, what about Paul? What did Paul say? Paul was not arguing against works. He was arguing against earning the favor of God by what you did. And you don't earn the favor of God. We don't earn the favor of God. We don't. There's nothing in us that is capable of that. It is in possible to earn the favor of God. Even the writer of Hebrews, as he talks about the great heroes of the faith, he always talks about faith in terms of action and behavior because faith is something that is translates and shows up into real life. And so this idea of faith is very nuanced in scripture. So let me just give you a couple of handles that I think are important to hold on to. And this is, this is them. You can write them down. I don't know if I'll talk about them all well, but there's this intellectual element. Notice what John says here in verse 20. Now many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but I wrote these so that you may believe. In other words, there is evidence and reason to base faith on. The world kind of looks at faith as if we are believing something blindly, in spite of the evidence. That is not what scripture calls us to. The scripture does not call us to believe in something blindly. The scripture calls us to believe in the trustworthiness of God. In the revealed reason of God. It is anchored in truth claims. It is anchored in evidence. It is not without evidence or in spite of the evidence. Actually, in the scripture, it is quite opposite of that. The word calls us to rest in, to place our confidence in, in that which is verifiably true, not subjectively true. Do you understand that? You understand the difference between objective and subjective truth, right? There's stuff that I feel that is true, and there's stuff that is absolutely just true. So you can feel, if you want to, I don't care, that this table is made out of rubber. Feel all you want to. The objective truth is that it's made out of wood, right? There's objective truth, and there's subjective truth. And sometimes our subjective feeling is right, and all that's true. But Christianity doesn't rest on what I feel. Christianity rests on who God has proven himself to be time and time again. And so there is this reason involved in faith. There is this mental understanding. There are some things that we know. Something that we grasp even. So there's also this volitional element. Volitional is just a cool word to say. It makes you sound way smarter than you are. Does anybody know what it means? So loud. Willing. It means you make a choice. And this is, this is in Scripture. What we mean by this is that faith is always presented as a matter of choice. It moves from merely agreeing that something exists or that something happened to a choice to rest on, to rely on, to relax in that very truth. And this is important because faith is never presented as being forced on someone. Even here, look at verse 21. These things are written so that you may believe. It's an invitation to believe. Pastor Thomas spoke of last week the rejection, and the rejection wasn't forced upon them. It was chosen. Evidence is given, and a choice must be made. It is never seen as something that happens to a person from outside of a person. It never happens apart 
from a person. Maybe we could say it that way. Nowhere are we led to believe that God forces himself upon us, but that he presents us with this evidence. And now it is then required of us to make a decision of whether we will trust that or not. Still more, faith has this practical element to it. And you have to understand this, that a a choice to believe is a choice that shapes our behavior. It is not theoretical belief. It is to live as though God is who he says he is. That's what trust is. Faith without works is dead, James will tell us. John would agree. Faith involves action. It shapes behavior. It shapes my thought life, my emotional life, my day-to-day living. A faith that has no practical outworking is not the faith of the Scripture. It's just not. That's uncomfortable and that's scary, but I think we, we should be clear here. So up to this point, we might say that faith encompasses all of us, our head, our hearts, and our hands. It is a whole life response to Jesus. But here's where I really want to hammer down at, and it is this, is that faith is relational. It's almost always used in the New Testament in the terms of relationship. Notice what John calls us to believe in verse number 21. It is not just to believe in general. It is to believe something specific. What? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Our faith, please hear me, is not in faith itself. Our faith is in a person. And that person is Jesus. And John has been tracing this out through his entire gospel. And he's been telling us that he is fully man and he is fully God. And what John doesn't do is he doesn't explain all of this. Which is really annoying, by the way. He, doesn't, he, he sees this as a very complex thing. And he doesn't really explain it. Here's why he doesn't explain it. Because you don't have to answer it all to be able to trust it all. And the question is not whether you can explain the absolute deity or the absolute humanity of Jesus. The question is, do you believe that Jesus is what he says he is? Do you trust him? And that's at the core. And so what John wants us to understand is that we're not having faith in faith. Our faith isn't something that we said or something that we know or something that we did. To believe is to trust the person of Jesus Christ who has proven himself trustworthy. This is what faith is. It rests in a person. So to believe then is to trust in Jesus. It is to rely on Jesus. It is to count even on Jesus. It means that I accept his claims. At least the claims I know. Please understand, you don't have to know everything about Jesus. What you do have to do is believe what you know. How many of you got married? How many of you are confused by the question? Okay, when you got married, did you know everything about your spouse? Ladies are going, no, if I'd have known what I know now, I might have made a different decision, right? So what you did was you acted based upon what you knew. With me? To believe in Jesus does not require you to understand everything about Jesus. It requires you to accept the light that you've been given. To trust it. To trust that he is who he says he is. That's what belief is. It means to rely on the person of Jesus Christ. It means that I count upon him to be who he says he is and to do what he says he is, that will do. I trust him. I take him at his word. He is who he claims to be. And what he did is enough to save me. It is to rest on who he is and what he has done. It is to transfer all of my hopes for life and eternity onto him alone who is able to carry those hopes. I put my confidence in him, not knowing or understanding everything, but I believe what he has revealed to me to be true about himself. 
To, to believe in Jesus then is this. It is to live as though he is who he says he is and he does what he says he does. Not the very least of which is to save my soul. Okay, so I'll tell you this story because it's silly. If you don't know this, I'm, I'm really afraid of water. Really afraid of water. Like grandbaby is about to learn how to swim and I'm not even going. I'm not watching. I don't trust their parents' judgment at this point. Right, all of those things are scary to me. So we go to Hurricane Harbor, which this is in Texas, long time ago. Kids were little. Um, apparently, floating around in the lazy river is not man enough for some of the people that I was with. One of the people that I was with was my wife. And just the whole day, you're only going to ride the lazy river. You're only going to ride the lazy river. I'm like, woman, I can drown in the lazy river. Yes, I'm only going to ride the lazy river. And so after the whole day of just peer pressure upon peer pressure upon peer pressure, I go, okay. I'm way older now. I don't give in to peer pressure anymore. But I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And so we get to the end of the park. And at the end of the park, there's this slide that's about like this. And it is a tall, man, it's a, I'm not afraid of slides. I'm afraid of water. The slide comes down into water into water that I look and I read, you know, because they always label how deep it is for people like me. It says that it's five foot deep. I'm five foot six. That's too close for comfort for me. I'm not trusting my ability to step on my tippy toes just so my nose is out of water. I'm not going to do it. So it's about a 20 foot run because you're coming in hot right on this raft pad thing. You're coming in hot and then you get to the end and it's probably the pad and the raft's probably going to take you all the way to the edge. But then how do you get off the pad and the raft to the concrete without drowning? I don't know. So there's this rope that separates the two lanes. And as I come down, man, I'm just, I, I'm not even thinking about the slide. I'm thinking about what do I do when I hit the water? What is my exit strategy here? Because I'm not just going to trust on my ability to stand above my tippy toes. I'm not going to trust in my ability to swim because I've seen that before. I'm not trusting on somebody to save me. My wife might just let me drown for a second just to have fun with me. So as soon as I hit the, like literally, probably before I was off the slide, I kicked that pad. I don't know who it hit. I don't really care. I grabbed a hold of the rope that divided the lanes. And literally, and here's what faith is. This is really silly. I get it. I understand. Illustrations are so horrible. But I took all of my hopes to keep me alive, and I placed them in something other than me. My ability to reach above the water, my ability to swim, and I transferred them onto the rope. When we trust in Christ, we are transferring all of our hope and weight of our eternity and life onto him. The difference is, this took my strength to hold the rope. The gospel is not your strength to hold Jesus. The gospel is Jesus' strength to hold you. That's faith. I trust him to hold me. Man, like I remember, I remember sitting in my living room one day when this became so crystal clear to me. I thought, man, did I pray right? Did I believe right? Was I sincere enough? Anybody with me? And it just finally dawned on me that, hey, listen, Jesus said he would save me. And if he doesn't save me, that's on him and not me. He's the one who does this. 
You say, well, that's irreverent and disrespectful. Is it? It's to trust that Jesus, who promised to be my Savior, who said that his death and his resurrection were enough and sufficient to give me his righteousness. It is to believe that he is who he says he is and will do what he says he has done. And I rest on it. This is faith. So quickly, I got to go and I got to talk about this life. Because John says that whoever believes, Jesus gives them life. Life is John's big word. Um, I don't know what kind of tradition you grew up in. I'm grateful for my tradition. But one of the terms we used often was saved. Anybody ever familiar with the term? It's a good Bible word. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Good Bible word. Sometimes, however, it has a lot of cultural impositions on it, and it loses some of its depth and nuance. Okay? And what I want to help people do, especially myself, is I want to learn to think of the life that God gives me more than just a single aspect of the life that he gives me. Because it's so much greater than the sum of its parts. And John uses this word life as kind of his catch-all term to describe the multifaceted nature of what it is that Christ gives to those who believe in him. It is life that those who are dead in trespasses and sin need. And it is life that Jesus gives And notice that this life hinges upon our belief. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The life that is to be possessed by us is based upon whether or not faith is exercised by us. And so the consequence of believing in Christ is life in his name. Not new information, not new theology, not a new social ethic, not a new spirituality, but a brand new life. So what is this life that Christ gives one of the most helpful ways to think of this is a, an entirely new kind of life, okay? So quickly, we could talk about, man, we could talk about so many things here, um, so many dimensions. We could talk about becoming the sons and daughters of God and the adoption that Paul speaks of. We could talk about justification. We could talk about imputed righteousness, how Christ's perfect life is credited to my account. We could talk about sanctification. We could talk about growth. We could talk about how when we are saved, we are made part of the family of God, how we are brought into his kingdom work about all the things, right? And all of these and more fall under this umbrella of life that G- John talks about. Let me give you three quickly that John emphasizes in his gospel. The first one is this, is at its core, the life that Jesus gives is interactive relationship with God. John 17.3, you can write it down, we won't take the time to turn there. But John 17.3 is the only place that Jesus ever defines eternal life. And do you know how he defines it? To know you, the only true God. For Jesus, he defines eternal life in terms of interactive relationship and knowing of God the Father and the Spirit, the Trinity. And so the concept here is that it is this interactive relationship with God. That's the way Jesus views this life. And it's the way that John describes the life that Jesus gives. It is to know God intimately and deeply. As though it were an interactive relationship with the divine. I need you to think about this. What Jesus gives to those who believe is interactive union with God. Like This is mind-blowing here. As if we could live each moment of every day with God himself. Even in a divine friendship with the Trinity where we live, learn to live and move and have our being from God himself. 
This is Jesus' understanding of what he came to give. It speaks of a closeness, of an intimacy. It alludes to the availability and accessibility of God to those who believe. Where you and I, listen to this, where you and I can walk in intimate union with God and be absolutely transparent with him and not have anything to fear. Listen, I can be absolutely a thousand percent me with God and I don't have to worry about anything. I can tell him how my day is going. I can tell him why I lost my temper. I can tell him why I'm doubting. I can tell him while I'm struggling. I can tell him why temptation is getting the better of me. And I'm never once going to find a God with his fist tightened up towards me. Not. And I don't have to tell him these things because he doesn't know. He knows. He knows so much better, right? I tell him because it allows me to commune with my father. Do you know what happened in the garden? In the garden, we lived with God. And when we sinned, what happened? We were removed from the garden, right? And then periodically, God will come down in a tabernacle or a tent or a temple and dwell with man. And then one day, Jesus comes and he does what? He is Emmanuel, God with us. Do you know how the New Testament closes? is that that city will need no sun or moon, for the sun himself will be the light of that city. And we will dwell with him, and he will be our God, and we will be his people. Do you know what will be restored on the ultimate day? This with God life. And Jesus said, I've already given it to you to enjoy now. It is also this transformational union. By that, what I mean is this, is when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he gives us his Holy Spirit, and now we are subject to the transforming work of the Spirit. Let me just say this real simple. God loves you and accepts you where you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. If you don't know this about God, you need to know this about God, that he is trying to change you. Be okay with that, because he will never make you less than what you were. It will always be better when he's done. Some people call this sanctification. There are a thousand different words for it, but the truth of the matter is that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought into a union with him that is designed to ultimately transform our life to where we become more and more like Christ. It is also indestructible in nature. That's what John means when he says eternal life, everlasting life. It means it cannot, it's not subject to, day, to decay, to destruction, or death. Do you know when you get eternal life? Henry, it was your birthday this week, wasn't it? Okay. Stand up and do me a favor. What happens when I give you this? You take it. And what did you get when I gave you that? Mints. Curiously strong mints is what it says, right? Okay. The Bible paints this picture. Can I have them back? I don't really want to give. Jesus won't give like I give. Okay? <laughs> Promise. When, when I gave him this, he received what? This. The Bible says in John chapter 5 that he who has the Son has, not will have, has now eternal life and will not come into condemnation. Do you know what you received when you received Jesus? Eternal life. Eternal life does not happen when you die. Eternal life is already happening. For those who believe in Jesus Christ. It goes on without end. I don't have to wait till I die to get eternal life. It's eternal now. It's indestructible. And this is the nature. And over and over and over again, Scripture will remind us this. And listen, we could go on and on and on here. But here's what I really want to drill down on. 
I want you to understand that the life that Jesus gives is his life. Paul will say this, Christ who is our life. John, in 1 John chapter 5, will say this. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So this life, regardless of of what part of it you decide to drill down on, all of it is in Jesus Christ. It is only in him, only in his name, only communicated through him. Apart from him, there is no life. So the offer on the table, when we say that Jesus gives life to all who believe, what we're saying is this, is Jesus offers himself to all who believe. And the very life that he has, he possesses, he lived, is now ours. Jesus doesn't just offer bread. He says, I am the bread of life. He doesn't just offer water. He says, I am the water of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the offer. Every spiritual blessing, Paul says, is ours where? In Christ. The blessings are in Christ. And this is so helpful for our understanding because most often what we do when we present what Jesus gives is a selected aspect of it. And that's important. But it is much more than the aspects of it. In my tradition that I grew up in, the dominant question was, do you know for sure you will go to heaven when you die? And I just want you to understand, I'm a huge fan of heaven. I have people I know there. I have a lot of people. I know there. I'm a huge fan of heaven. But I also know that what Jesus came to give is so much greater than heaven. Heaven is beautiful and great. And man, let's bring it. Let your kingdom come now. Let us let's bring it now. But the offer is more than heaven. The offer is Jesus. The offer is Jesus. And because we have Jesus, we have heaven. And because we have Jesus, we have imputed righteousness. And because we have Jesus, we are made the sons and daughters of God. And because Jesus, our life is being transformed by the work of the Spirit. Because we have Jesus, we have his family. Because we have Jesus, Jesus is the offer. So how many of you remember when you had your babies? Some of you. Some of us will have to work harder to remember. Okay? But what did you receive when that baby came into this world? Chunky thighs, amen. Chubby cheeks, oh yes. Neck fat. How many of you, how many of you mom and daddies and grandparents, come on with me, come on just with me. Say it just, that neck fat on the back of their neck, is it not like otherworldly beautiful, right? Why you get older, your neck fat isn't nearly as pretty? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. But what did you get? Did you get neck fat? No, you got life. And with that life came all of the chubby cheeks and the life and the facial expressions. But even more than life, do you know what you got? You got Lily. You got Amelia. You got Isaac. And in that life, you got all that comes with them till one day you're sitting around your table on Sunday night and they're making you laugh so hard because they're grown up. It hurts your side. is Jesus. Please understand this. What we believe in is Jesus. What we get is Jesus. 
He is the sum and substance of our faith. And all of, this, all of the parts, as beautiful as they are, pale in comparison to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Stand with me. Father, we love you. We're grateful that you have given us your word to reveal these things to us. We hope that it has been clear, and if it hasn't, make it clear in our hearts by the work of your spirit. You call us to exercise faith, and when we do, you give life. You've given us so much reason to believe. Our faith is not blind. It is, is built upon your trustworthiness. And so today, if we don't have faith, we, exer- we ask that you would give it to us. If our faith is weak or small, we ask that you would strengthen it and make it more. If we do have faith, Father, then help us to rejoice in what you have given us in your Son. Help us to understand that the ask is to believe and that the gift is yourself. You you have given us you. And nothing is greater. Oh, let us rejoice in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.